excited to have uh, you all with us tonight and uh, worship the Lord and to open His Word. And so, without further ado, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 6, verses 28. I'm going to read through chapter 7, verse 13. We're continuing our series in the book of Exodus, which we're calling Redeemed for Worship. Story about how God shows up powerfully and brings out His people from the land of Egypt from 430 years of slavery to a place where He would be worshipped by them. And so, here we are in the, in the beginning parts of the story still. This is actually going to be our last week for a while in Exodus uh, as we're going to be entering into a new series called Carols, Why We Sing. Again, partnering with Missio through the Advent season. So we're excited about that. Uh, more info coming, and uh, just be on the lookout for that. And then maybe some other things in January. We'll probably pick up Exodus again at the end of January. So we're going to mix it up a little bit, right? Does that sound good? Nobody cares. Anyway, no. <laughs> of course you care. All right, Exodus chapter 6, verse 28. Again, I'm going to read through uh, 713. Listen to the word of the Lord as recorded by Moses. Verse 28, on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. And bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. 
This is God's word, amen? Amen. Have you ever felt like the deck was stacked against you in life? Right? Maybe I don't know if it's uh, something going on at work, some circumstance at home, some important relationship to you, some decision, some uh, challenge or goal in mind, and yet you look at the situation and you realize that everything is going against you. The deck is stacked against you so much that it, it looks so difficult that it almost seems impossible. It's, a, it's task impossible. Have you ever felt like that? That's exactly how Moses feels in this story right now. He feels like the deck is completely stacked against him. Right? Everything is going the wrong way or not the way that he had hoped. He's, he's um, been called to go to the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. And say, hey, I know you've had these guys for 400 plus years. I know they do a lot for you, but you got to let them go. So they can go worship and eat in the wilderness. That's what we've been told to do. And he did it. Although hesitant, he did it. He went. He went to the people of Israel, and they initially got excited. Then he went to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, what did he do? Forget about it. No. I don't know Yahweh. I don't know the Lord. I'm not going to do it. And then what happens in that moment? They get more work, and Pharaoh, uh, I'm sorry, and the people of Israel get frustrated. They get mad. And they basically call down cursing and judgment on Moses and Aaron. And so Moses throws his hands up and says, what, You're not delivering your people. They don't believe me anymore. Pharaoh's not letting him go. What are you doing? The people of Israel don't believe. Pharaoh refuses to let them go. And the Lord continues to call him. How frustrating it must be for Moses, at least from a human perspective. The deck seems to be stacked against him. He begins to question his call again. He's hesitating once again to obey the voice of the Lord, isn't he? The reason he's doing it is because he's looking at who he is, what he at least perceives that he's able and not able to do, and he's looking at the response that he assumes he's going to get. Simply put, Moses is questioning his call and the effectiveness of being called to this task on the basis of who he is, what he thinks he's able to do, and what result will come from it. Look at what he says. As Yahweh again says, I am the Lord revealing himself. And then out of that revelation calling Moses, go Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I said to you. Moses says, listen up. Look, you don't seem to understand. I am a man of uncircumcised lips. Meaning, simply put, I don't have what it takes. Faltering is what some people would translate this as. Faltering. I fumble and I, and I, and, and I falter when I start to speak. I can't speak. You got the wrong guy. Moses is questioning his call based on that. He's He's self-aware, isn't he? He knows his gifts. He knows what his gifts aren't. He knows the gifts that he has, and he knows the gifts that he does not have, and therefore he hesitates to make himself available to what the Lord calls him to. Do we not do this? 
Do we not hear the voice of the Lord, hear the call of God, and respond by saying, yeah, but Lord, you don't understand who I am and my inadequacies, and you don't understand that when I try to do this, it won't work. It's an ineffective plan based on who I am. Do we do that? Do we engage in some level of self-awareness, trying to get, go on some journey of trying to do some sort of self-actualization, maybe run a few Myers-Briggs tests, take strengths finder, you know, talk to other people. Ooh, what is my best contribution to society? Tell me about me. Don't we do that? Are we self-consumed? That when the Lord's calling comes to us, we begin to look at the Lord's calling through who we are, through what we think we can do, and through what we assume will happen if we obey. I think that's what we do. Let me confess, I often do this. And I see others do it as well. We often hesitate when we hear God's call. Maybe hiding behind some sort of false sense of humility, a a spiritual gift assessment. That's not my gift. I don't need to do that. Put ourselves in kind of an obedience box. We, We take a personality profile and we have ourselves our lane that we're willing to run in and that's it. No matter what the Lord would say. And really, in this self consumed state, we find that what the greatest hurdle to obedience really is. What? The human heart. Right? The greatest hurdle to human obedience is nothing less, nothing more than um, our heart. But what we need to do, and what Moses needs to do in this text, and we see that in the end he ends up following suit, is that we don't need to hear the Lord's call and respond based on who we are, what we think we can do, and what will become of our actions. But we need to hear the Lord's call and respond to the Lord's call in light of who the Lord is. What the Lord is able and intending to do as we obey His voice. Amen? And that's what we see happening here. We need to be God-aware. We need to be uh, Gospel-aware. We need to be... uh, Christ consumed. Stop looking in the mirror and begin to look at Scripture about who God is, how He's revealed Himself, what He is capable of accomplishing through His called people. Stop looking in the mirror. Start looking at the Scriptures. He's telling them, I'm the Lord. I'm the God who is. The one who has eternally existed, eternity past, in present and eternity future. I've created everything. I am more than able and capable to carry out all my intended redemptive purposes. Even as you understand that you are so inadequate for the task. Right? The Lord's calling of Moses is dependent upon who God is. What God intends to do to him and what God intends to do through him as Moses obeys. I love verse 1. Look at verse 1. Again, I think primarily, as you see in the pattern of all these stories, that what starts every call and command is the revelation of who God is, right? I am the Lord. And then we get the command. But then we also see that his calling is depending on what God has done to Moses. Look at what he says. I love these words. Maybe I'm reading into it too much. But he says, see, I have made you. I've made you. And so many of us, again, looking in the mirror, can 
can be overwhelmed by a sense of inadequacy. And to some degree, we should be. We are not capable on our own, are we? We're not adequate for the task. But we have to understand those words that it is the Lord that says, I've made you by grace through Christ. I've made you who you are. And that's my work. It's the work of grace in your life that needs to be at the forefront of everything that I'm calling you to do. I've made you. And he goes on to say that he's made Moses like God to Pharaoh. And brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Basically saying, you are my representative. You are my ambassador. I'm calling you and I am making you someone that you formerly were not. My representative to the most powerful man in the world. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Right? Aaron, and you shall represent me to him. And we see as well that, again, being that representative, being the instrument of what God wants to do through him, God tells him what he's going to do. He said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Simply put, God intends to make stubborn Pharaoh. I'm going to actively make him stubborn. That's what I'm going to do as you obey me. That's what the text says. I'm not trying to put theology on it. So some of you getting caught there. I'm just saying what the text says. God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He says, and at the same time, he's going to multiply signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. So while he's hardening, making stubborn the heart of Pharaoh, he's revealing himself through mighty signs and wonders who he is. Making hard, revealing himself. And again, you read those words, Pharaoh will not listen to you, and you you begin to wonder, well, that's kind of a downer, right? Like, you're actually right, Moses. You know how you said that You're a man of uncircumcised lips and Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. You're actually right. He's not going to listen to you. But again, it's not because of you. It's because of what I'm doing. It's not your inability that is causing the ineffectiveness, at least in your own mind. It's what I'm doing. I'm hardening his heart. What looks like an obstacle, it becomes actually an instrument, if you will, to God carrying out his redemptive purposes in the world. He's hardening his heart. He's revealing himself to the world. Pharaoh's not going to listen. Then I'm going to lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my children, the, my, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. What he is going to do is judge Egypt. Remember before he said it, I will strike Egypt. Pharaoh's not going to listen. And I will strike Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. This is what God is intending to do. He's reiterating some things he's already said. And he's reassuring Moses of his call. This is what you're called to do, Moses. You speak for me. You represent me. I take care of the rest. I will accomplish my work my redemptive work in the lives of my people through your faithful obedience to speak and represent me. 
And again, I read this and I can't help but think to myself something that we need to learn, that I need to learn, is that at the end of the day, as those who believe and belong to Jesus, those who hear the Word of God, hear the calling of God that comes with that, that our only responsibility is obedience. That should give you peace. The only result in a results-based world in which we live, the only result that you are responsible for as a follower of Jesus is obedience. You're not responsible for the results that come from the obedience. That's up to God. Can you let that sit? I need to let that sit. Obedience is the only result that Moses is responsible for. Look at you just obey my voice. I'm going to tell you what to say. You're not an author. You're just a spokesman. You're going to go say it. I'm going to take care of the rest. Obedience is the only thing Moses is responsible for. And truth be told, obedience is the only result that we are responsible for. God takes care of the rest. Amen? I think that's helpful for us when we think about the commands of Scripture. Because I think often we look at them and we say to ourselves, I hear what God is calling me to do. I see it. But I don't think, given who I am, given the circumstances, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it's going to give God the glory He thinks it will, nor do I believe in any way, shape, or form that it's going to give me the joy that I long for, just simply obeying Him. It's not going to work. It's impractical. It doesn't really make sense in 2014 for me to obey that. And so we look ahead with fearful anxiety, maybe a desire to control our lives and the results that we get from our lives. And we say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to disobey. I'm going to walk away or I'm going to make excuses about what God is calling me to do. Maybe even hiding behind some odd, misconstrued sense of humility as we disobey the Lord. God is saying, Heard my voice. Obey me. I'll take care of the rest. It's going to require trust. It's going to require surrender. But whatever the case may be, let it be heard today that obedience is the only result that you're responsible for. God will take care of working out the results He intends, the larger results that He intends, all under His sovereign watch care for His glory and purposes in this world. That's what He does. And man, is He good at it, right? More could be said there. I think what we're seeing here, friends, is that no one, nothing, stands in the way of the Lord's plan to redeem His people. Not Moses' inabilities. Not Pharaoh's refusal to let them go. The Lord said, this is what you're to do. The Lord said, this is what I'm going to do. 
and it will happen. I will redeem my people. No one will stand in the way of my plan to redeem my people. I think that's really what this text is getting at. He's going to redeem his people. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The world will see through judgment. Oh, I don't like judgment. It's in the text. Through mighty acts of judgment. The world will know who God really is. Right? No one will stand in the way of that plan. I think that when we realize that, when we realize that no one stands in the way of the Lord's plan to redeem His people or reveal Himself to the world, when we get that, even our own inadequacies and inabilities, guess what we can finally do? Walk at peace in obedience to Him, can't we? That's what, that's what Moses and Aaron do. They finally throw up the white flag. Right? This is the first time you see that. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. They were 80 years old. 83. They were old school. Right? And God still was carrying out His redemptive purposes in the most unlikely of people. The most inadequate of people. What made them who they were was just a simple willingness to finally just obey the voice of the Lord and recognize that nothing stood in the way of His plan to save His people. Nothing, no one. And so they obey. And truth be told, what we're seeing now is the pep talks are over. You know, it's been a long time since I was in high school, even though I continue to live vicariously through my children who play sports. Um, yeah, I'm that guy completely. I had a conversation with a, a fellow dad as inside him like a raging inferno. Like, why won't they just run? And I'm like, I look at the guy next to me and I'm like, you know, that's why I'm never going to be a coach in, in any way, shape, or form because I'll make a complete fool of myself because I'm that dad. Uh, I just need to stand there with my hoodie and my hat and just keep my thoughts to myself, right? Okay? Anyway, so the pep talks are over. Right? You remember when you had the big game, when the showdown was coming? Like for Faith Heritage, it was playing CBA. You know, like, oh, dude, we got CBA. We need a game plan. Because they're like undefeated. And, you know, they're taking care of business, and we pretty much stink. So we need a game plan. And so you'd get the, the whiteboard out, or old school would get the chalkboard out, and, and, and you'd be thinking all week, you'd be going game plans. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. Maze, you're going to do this. So-and-so, you're going to do that. And we're going to practice blood, sweat, and tears. We're going we're gonna to hype you up. We're going to get the band out, pep rally. And then at the end of the day, it was time to just put the shoes on and play ball. In some ways, that's what's happening now. It's time to play ball. These guys have heard the plan. They know the strategy. They understand the enemy that they face, the opponent, and they're trusting that God is going to act and it's time to just play ball. And so that's what we see in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. So they're not just talking about it now. They're engaging in battle. Game on. It's time to play ball. So he goes in. And uh, they did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, 
and it became a serpent. Wow, what is the significance of what's going on there? What is going on? I think it's important for us to, to not just see this as a simple like game of horse. You know, where one guy's calling glass and the other guy is trying to make a shot off the glass. Right? There's something a little bit more significant taking place. Well, in order to understand it, uh, given the fact that I did not live in this time nor interact with any of these people, I had to read about it. So this is what Philip Riken says about this event. Listen to this. The serpent was the symbol of Pharaoh's authority. His headdress was crested with a female what? Cobra. Somebody's watching the History Channel. Right? With a cobra. That's right. A serpent. They believe that this was most likely a cobra at that. By wearing it, by Pharaoh wearing it, the idea would be that Pharaoh would terrorize his enemies the way a cobra strikes fear into its prey. The symbol of his authority. Destroying and striking his enemies. The Egyptians were fascinated with snakes, partly because they were so afraid of them, right? We do that. We're kind of, the scary things we're kind of attracted to, right? We worship what we're afraid of. And they actually worship a god called Apophis, which was the serpent god who personified evil. They worship snakes. Now listen to what he says. He says, when Aaron threw down the staff in front of Pharaoh, he was taking the symbol of the king's majesty and making it crawl in the dust. This was a direct assault on Pharaoh's sovereignty. An attack on Egypt's entire belief system. He takes aim at his enemies at the greatest strength and overwhelms it with superior force. Basically, he claims ultimate authority over Egypt. Not just a game of horse in the driveway. He's confronting the authority of Pharaoh, confronting the gods of Egypt, and he's basically saying, it's on like Donkey Kong. He's going to war. Game on. It would be likened, Riken says, I think this is an excellent illustration, in our society, it would be likened to us getting a hold of a bald eagle, right? Going into the Oval Office, ripping its head off and throwing it on the ground in front of the president. I think that's a pretty powerful illustration of what is actually taking place in this moment when he does it. Pharaoh says, okay, game on, right? Let's play ball. Let's, let's do this. So he calls in the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Uh-oh. I mean, I don't know how much time has lapsed between what's happening now and what's to follow, but I wonder if that moment, Moses and Aaron are like, Shoot, what are we going to do now? Right, I called glass and he hit it. Right, we're even. Right? It's a tie in the NFL 
man, that's what a waste of the day to tie in the NFL. None of us could score in overtime. Like, we both stink, right? So, there's tension that's building. God is revealing Himself. He's confronting Pharaoh, all of His authority, all of His majesty, throwing down the staff and becoming a serpent. And then Pharaoh says, yeah, me too. Here's my representatives who do their thing by their secret arts, and they're matching you. They throw down theirs. Matter of fact, they have more than one. And they all turn to serpents. And then we see what the text says. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And what we see in this moment is in the swallowing of the Egyptian serpents by the serpent staff of Aaron, that God basically said, I stand alone as the God of human history. Right? Riken goes on to say, the God of Israel is the Lord of Egypt. I don't think that could be said any better. The God of Israel is the Lord of Egypt. You may dispute it. You may challenge it. You may question the authority and the divinity of Yahweh. But here's the deal. We swallow you up, Pharaoh, in victory. That there's no one that stands in the way of the one who alone stands as the God of the world. He's superior. He stands taller. He shines brighter. We live in a pluralistic society where many gods are embraced and called that they're all the same. And in this text, we're confronted with the truth that they're not all the same. There's an equal playing field, yes, but Yahweh stands above all gods. And He swallows up the authority, the majesty, the truth claims. He swallows it up. And, and, and even how the Egyptians understood the nature of swallowing it up is interesting to me. That it wasn't just defeat. It was literally all the majesty, all the authority is now consumed by me. It's mine. That's what God is saying. God is superior. The Lord is swallowing up His enemies right here, right now. Hashtag boom. That's what it is. That's what God does here. Boom. I alone am Yahweh. I alone am God in the world forever and forevermore. And I can't help but think as well that this reminds us of the time where Satan most likely, I might be going Francine Rivers on you and reading into things, but I got to think that there was some sort of demonic party going on at the crucifixion where Satan thinks he's won. And out of nowhere, Jesus busts through the stone and with great authority and power is raised from the dead. And literally swallows up death. 1 Corinthians 15, right? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death. You hear me, death? Where's your sting? 
The Lord is swallowing up anything that would claim to have authority or power or sovereign control over what is rightfully His, everything. Including His people. And so you'd think, with this significant event, which puts on display the in, uh, incomparable glory, power, and authority of Yahweh in the face of the Egyptians, would do what it would do to any of us if we came face to face with obvious glory that was unmatched, right? If any of us saw something like this, then surely we would believe. Surely we'd throw our hands up and say, okay, you got us. I believe, I submit, let's go eat, right? We would assume that because logically that would be the only conclusion. But you see in the human heart, there's more going on than simply logic. That even in the face of obvious, unparalleled authority, People's hearts remain hard and ears remain deaf to the word of God. And, and, and how can you explain that? How do you make sense of them seeing this obvious uh, and really even initial, but still obvious enough, display of unparalleled authority and glory and them saying, yeah, I still don't believe I refuse, I refuse to listen. How does Pharaoh do that? As the text says, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them. I think often we scratch our heads as we hear the, this powerful preaching of the gospel, this declaration of the word of God, even just the simple reading of the text. That we say, and, and the singing of the songs that declare those words as well. And say, how do people not believe that? How do they not embrace and trust that? Again, the most, what's the, the biggest hurdle to, the, to obedience? The hardness of the human heart. We see that. We see that. People see your life. They see the obvious transforming grace that's on display in your life. You testify to where it came from. And people go, nah, I'm out. Why? The hardness of their heart. Verse 13. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them. And we cannot, shall not, better not miss the last five words. As the Lord had said. Right? Can't miss that. Moses and Aaron are obeying, aren't they? Right? Is it, if my eyes worked, I would tell you. Verse 6. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Right? Verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Right? Verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen as the Lord had said. What's going on there? No one is standing in the way of God's plan to redeem his people. He's in charge. He has all authority. He's carrying out his purposes. The obedience of Moses, the hardening and refusal to listen of Pharaoh, it's what looks to be obstacles in the way of God redeeming his people. God is so sovereign, they're actually using them as instruments to carry it out. We have to plummet to the depths of the sovereignty of God to truly understand what's going on in the book of Exodus and really what's going on in our lives. The Lord is carrying out His plans and purposes in the world. Nothing is standing in the way. He's in charge. He's the boss. He's CEO. We don't want to think that way. We want to, we want to lower Him. We want to minimize His place. And we want to elevate ours. We're in charge. We're responsible. Our words 
will come to pass. We make promises about this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Look at many are the plans of a man's heart, but what? The Lord guides his steps. He's sovereign. We've got to be willing to see that, submit to that. No one stands in the way of the one who stands alone. We have to be willing to obey him, and we have to be uh, quickened to worship him for who he is as the incomparable Lord of all. Right? What do we do? We, we don't want to be like these folks, <laughs> not to make this a be like sermon, but we don't want to be those who hear the word of God and harden our hearts, as Psalm 95 talks about, do we? We want to have a softened heart where, where the Spirit of God enters in and begins to woo us and quicken us and, and, and open our eyes, open our ears that we might hear the Word of God and be available to whatever He would call us to and at the very same time hear the Word of God and respond with obedient, submissive worship. That's what we got to do. But we can't lest the Spirit of God draw us. No one stands in the way of the one who stands alone. You may say, I'm unsavable. No one stands in the way of the one who stands alone. You may say, I'm unusable. No one stands in the way of the one who stands alone. This world does not stand in the way of the one who stands alone. Your sin, the sin of others, Satan, death, your abilities or lack thereof, it does not stand in the way of the one who stands alone. He will carry out His plan to redeem His people and reveal Himself to the world. He's going to do it. Let's not miss that. Therefore, the Lord through Christ by His Spirit is able to save anyone. He calls from anything. Right? I mean, Egypt, 430 years, the most powerful person. Talk about slavery. Talk about being stuck. And yet, by the declaration of His Word, through the obedience of His servant, through mighty acts of judgment, He delivers them. He delivers them. Christ can save anyone from anything. Anyone whom He calls. Amen? So let me say it this way. You're not unsavable. No matter what sin you think is powerful, no matter what struggle, no matter what event in the past that you feel has crippled you, you're not unsavable. <laughs> you're very savable by the all-powerful Christ. His work is sufficient. And you say, well, I'm not, that's not my gift. I'm not called to do this. That. Look, at, can we just make ourselves available to the Word of God, whatever it calls us to, and trust in the results? And not be putting ourselves in an obedient box? Say, well, I only do that. Let's not do that. That's not what Scripture teaches. That's man-centered, self-consumed living. Let's not do that. And if you see it in me, tell me to stop it. Okay? Deal? Deal. Only on Tuesdays, though. Never on a Monday. <laughs> Think about this. Last thing I'm going to say. There are no obstacles in the way of the Lord keeping His promises to His people. <laughs> How many obstacles are there for the Lord to keep His promises to His people. Give, give me one. Right? we got nothing. I think that gives us assurance. Gives us hope. There are no obstacles in the way of the Lord keeping His promises to His people. Psalm 138, I couldn't help but think about it. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Stop claiming that as 
some idea you've got in your head someday that you're going to achieve and some goal, some self-vision. It's about his saving purposes, his covenantal purposes in Christ that he's accomplished. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for you. He's going to save you. Nothing will stand in the way of that. And so it is indeed in this prelude to the plagues. We've, again, hashtag boom, hashtag we're only started, getting started, right? It's only the beginning of the revelation of this incomparable God. No one stands in the way of the one who stands alone. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, ranting and raving even now in my just attempt to serve You, proclaim Your Word, the only thing of value is the truth of the Scriptures. Your Word which accomplishes its purposes in the lives of Your people as You redeem them and reveal Yourself to the world through them. I pray that Your Word would take root in the hearts of every person in this room. Soften it by the Spirit. May both hands be raised and open palms in response to Your call. Here I am, send me. I'll do anything You ask, O Lord. I will not make excuses. I will obey Your call. May every person in this room trust You to that degree. And not focus on themselves, but see You as the basis and foundation of anything that You're calling them to. And Lord... We pray that we would see You for who You are. The God who stands above all. The One who swallows up Your enemies and stands tall, shines bright. And may we rejoice in You and seek to worship and obey You with everything that we have. Nothing less will suffice. All that we are, all that we have is Yours. The God of Israel is indeed the Lord of Egypt. And Lord, You're our God and King as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.